you join me as we start this morning and give you a big round of applause to our worship team? That was a lot of fun to see everybody up there worshiping this morning. That was really great. Luke, thanks for leading us in that this morning. Oh, I think I'll preach from here today. This looks like a good spot. You guys didn't need this, right? Well, I, I was singing this morning, and I remember a time in my life when I came to church and I listened to sermons and I really wanted it to be something that made a difference in my life and I heard a lot of sermons and I tried as hard as I could and I, I was reading the Bible and I just, as hard as I tried, I, I couldn't get there. I didn't know what it was that I was supposed to have happening to me and, and as much as I wanted that I was just coming to church, and as I look back on that time in my life, the, the reason why nothing was changing for me is because my life wasn't under the authority of God, right? I, I wanted God to be a part of my life, uh, but I wanted religion, I wanted Christianity, I, I wanted church to be under my control. And it doesn't work that way. In order for me to be a Christian, in order for me to be a man of faith, I have to be under God's control. And so I don't know if any of you needed to hear that this morning, uh, but faith doesn't work if we're in charge. And so that's what we're talking about this month. Uh, how do we put every aspect of our lives under God's control? And there are a lot of different things we could talk about, but probably the most dangerous and the most difficult thing to relinquish control of, the most difficult thing to give to God, is money. Everybody's favorite subject, right? And so this month, we're talking about what does it look like to give God control, to give God authority when it comes to finances. And so that's what our series is about. We've spent the first two weeks looking at a couple of New Testament parables, and we've said that the money isn't ours. Right? The, the money doesn't belong to us. It's everything that we have in our bank accounts, all the equity we have, all of the property that we, well, not we, I don't own any property, all the property that you own, all of the things that we consider to be our possessions, they're not ours. They're just things that God has entrusted to us. So the question changes from what are we going to do with our money, and it shifts to what are we going to do with the money that God has entrusted to us. And that's where we started. We started with, this isn't ours. This isn't ours. This is God's, and He expects us to invest His resources in people. And then last week, we looked at the parable of the rich fool, and we said, listen, greed and money is going to help you buy into this terrible lie. And the lie is this, that I have or I can have enough to be satisfied. If I have a little bit more, then I'll have enough to be satisfied. That's never true. That's never true. Studies show that no matter how much you have, you'll always want 10% more. And the reason is we always covet most whatever is just out of our reach. We always covet the most whatever is just out of our reach. And so we'll never have enough to be satisfied. We'll never have enough to be generous unless we can be generous with what we have right now. 
And so this week, I want to I build on that series, but we're actually going to go to the Old Testament, and we're going to take a look at a gentleman in the Old Testament who's going to help us learn a lesson. And from the earliest of ages, we begin to learn lessons, right? One of the things that we do in our car right now is seeing the ABCs. Well, Leah and I do, and Atticus makes noises that resemble the tune to ABCs. Uh, but that's one of the first and the earliest lessons that you learn. You learn the ABCs. Then you learn vowels and consonants. After that, you learn pahonics. And after you learn pahonics, then you learn phonics. Thank you for laughing at that. I thought it was really funny. <laughs> Before you know it, we learn to read. Once we learn how to read, then we start to learn these things called numbers. And we learn to count to 10, then we learn to count to 20, and we learn to count to 100. And once you can count to 100, theoretically you can count as high as you want to, as long as your patience hold out. Right? So we learn to count. Then, once we learn how to count, we learn that different numbers can be added together. Once we learn how to add, we learn how to subtract, multiply, and divide and once you've mastered those lessons, I'm assuming that you've mastered those lessons. I haven't. Okay? Once you learn those lessons, then we start mixing letters and numbers together. We call that algebra, geometry, and trigonometry. And I think there's a thing called calculus. I never really... That's all letters at that point. right? But if you're like me, you didn't learn those lessons and you changed majors. <laughs> Not a lot of math problems in the Bible. Right? People have been learning lessons since the beginning of time. And from the opening pages of Genesis, we see lessons being learned. Adam and Eve learned how to tend a garden. Noah learned how to build a cruise ship. And the people in Babel learned how to build a skyscraper, although maybe they shouldn't have. Today we're going to take a look at a man who learned an incredibly important lesson. And if we learn this same lesson, then maybe... Just maybe for the first time in our lives, we can see our financial houses come in order. We're in the midst of a series on money and how we handle money in a God-honoring way. And we're doing that because no matter how much money you have, it can be a dangerous thing. No matter how much money you have, it can be something that glorifies God with your millions. You can glorify God with your ones, right? And, or, or you can be dishonoring to God with your millions. Or you can be honoring to God with your two small copper coins. Right? We want to learn how to honor God with the financial resources that we've been entrusted and we want, quite frankly, we want to be able to sleep better at night sometimes, don't we? We want our children to get off on the right foot financially after they graduate and set out on their own. And we want to be able to be generous. But most of all, we want to have stronger relationships with God. That's what this series is all about. Strengthening our relationships with God by looking at what the Bible has to say about money. And this morning, we're going to learn a lesson from a gentleman named Abraham. His story is told in the book of Genesis. And, and for those of you who may not be familiar with this man, Abraham, he is considered to be the first Jew. He was the father of the Jewish faith. 
It was through Abraham that God established a covenant, and from Abraham's line that Jesus was born. So his story is of vital importance, not just to Jews, but also to us as well. And today, we're going to take a look at Abraham and what I would consider to be the defining moment in Abraham's life. The defining moment in his life. Now, that's serious talk, isn't it? You talk about the defining moment in somebody's life, that's a big deal. Let's think about some defining moments in people's lives. What about Neil Armstrong? What would Neil Armstrong's defining moment be? Go ahead. I didn't get any of that. Was it a mumble? He mumbled? From space, he mumbled? No, Neil, he said, one small step for man... Yeah, that was a defining moment. What about Abraham Lincoln? What would you say his defining moment would be? The Gettysburg Address. I definitely thought that was going to be an answer. I would say the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. But the Gettysburg Address, man, it's hard to argue with that, Bill. I'm not going to argue with you. (laughs) What about Dr. King? What would you say his defining moment would be? Yeah, he had a dream and he shared it with us. Defining moment is a serious thing, and in Genesis chapter 22, we get to take a look at Abraham's defining moment. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Their whole lives, Abraham and Sarah were childless. It's not until Abraham is a hundred years old that the promise comes true and he and Sarah have a child. She's 90 at the time. You know what I want to be doing at 90? Being alive, not, giving, not having a newborn, okay? Uh, so this covenant between God and Abraham depends on a son being born to Abraham and Sarah. It depends on a child being born to Abraham and Sarah, not Abraham and Sarah's maidservant. It has to be Abraham and Sarah. So young Isaac is Abraham's life. He is not only Abraham's son whom he loved, Isaac was the hope of the family that they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's the covenant promise that God made with Abraham. I will make you as numerous as the stars in the sky. So not only is Isaac a son that he loves, he's also a hope for a great great future that's been promised by God. And now this beloved son has to die. Not only does he have to die, he has to die at the hands of a father who loves him. Life was great for Abraham. I mean, life was, Abraham was doing pretty good at this point in his life. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, on this idle Tuesday, God hits him with a Mack truck. He says, sacrifice your only son. Why in the world would God command this? Why in the world would God command this? Maybe some of you are like me and you've struggled with this passage before. Why would you do this, God? This doesn't seem good. Why? Why? Would God do this? God wanted to test 
Abraham. All right, so he wanted to test him. You put that on the screen, that makes it super official. To what end did God want to test him? God wanted to see if Abraham was committed to him. Did Abraham love the gift that God had given him more? Or did Abraham love the giver of the gift more? Was Abraham willing to let go of what he held so tightly for the sake of the God who had commanded it? Genesis 22 and verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. And he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. This isn't a gleeful response from Abraham. This isn't joyful and willing obedience. I can't imagine how he tossed and turned in the night. How many of you think Abraham got any sleep that night before? None at all. None at all. He just thought about it. He probably sweat, cold sweat all over his, uh, they probably didn't have mattresses, wherever they slept on. There's, there's no rest. There's no peace in his mind. There's no peace in his heart. There's only this impending reality. There's no procrastination. There's no putting it off. It's just obey or disobey. If you obey your beloved son dies. If you disobey, you're ignoring God. There's no way to win in this situation for Abraham. But he understands something. He understands that God has to be obeyed. So he gets up early, he gets his son out of bed, he packs up their supplies, and they get on the road. There's no goodbyes, there's no farewell parties, there's no final hugs, not even one for mom. In spite of all of the sorrow, this is a picture of incredible and immediate obedience. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Third day. On the third day. Notice Abraham has three days of traveling and two sleepless nights to change his mind. But what does he do? He trusts in God for three days of travel and for two sleepless nights. Hey, you know what else took place? Over the course of three days? Ah, never mind. It probably wasn't important anyway. Three days. Fascinating. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. I want you to look at the pronouns here. I'm kind of a nerd. I like pronouns. We will worship and we will come back to you. Now, there are a whole bunch of different pronouns that we could use here. Abraham could have said, and maybe based on what he knew he was getting ready to do, right? He's going to sacrifice his son. What would have been appropriate is to say, we will worship and I will come back to you. Is that what Abraham says? No. He says, we will worship and we will come back to you. Why do you think he says that? Because he knows he's getting ready to kill his son. It's because... Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. 
Abraham believed that he was commanded to do this, and he also has this understanding. Well, God has said that this promise is going to be fulfilled through my son Isaac, so if God's asking me to kill my son Isaac, then he's also going to bring him back from the dead. Abraham's faith in this moment was so much stronger than his fear. His love of God was so much stronger than his human logic. Abraham trusted God. He said, my son may die, but I know that God can bring him back from the dead. By the way, we know this is what Abraham was thinking. The, the book of Hebrews tells us this. It says, by faith, Abraham offered Isaac when he was tested. The one who received the promise was offering his only son. He had been told concerning him, your legitimate descendants will come from Isaac. And he figured that God could even raise him from the dead. So in a way, he did receive him back from the dead. Abraham knew that the covenant promise was going to come through Isaac, so he knew that Isaac had to live. And Abraham put his trust in the power of God to raise his son from the dead, to fulfill the covenant that was already given. We will come back to you. Not just me. We, my son and I, will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Does this story sound like anything to you? The wood for the burnt offering is placed. It's the burden that the son has to carry as they climb up this mountain. A beloved son that has to be killed. Three days they travel. Oh, nothing. There's probably no correlation. Well, as the two of them went out together, Isaac Isaac spoke up and said, he said, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here. Abraham, Isaac's going, you know, I've been thinking. I've been keeping track of what we've brought with us. Got the fire, we got the wood. Yeah, we got that. Just a quick question. Maybe this is of no consequence. You've already figured this out, Dad. But, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham replied, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went out together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. Let's pause. Right? Let's just pause here for just a second. We've got, we're going to put a little bit of a DVR on our sermon this morning and pause here, just catch our breath because this is, this is terrible. This is an awful moment. Can you imagine what this would have been like? Isaac's not a little boy because he's capable of carrying the wood for the sacrifice. Did Abraham have to bind him so that Isaac wouldn't try to escape? I don't know the answer to that. But what we do know is that this is a moment of indescribable emotion and indescribable pain for the both of them. I can't fathom what Abraham was thinking and I can't fathom what Isaac was thinking. Once he was laid on the altar, the knife comes out. The sheath is open and it's imminent that Isaac's body is about to be sacrificed to God. But the angel of the Lord called out to him and he said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Abraham replied, 
And the angel said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. The angel says, Abraham, Abraham, his name was spoken twice. That was to get your attention immediately. We can think of similar occurrences. Moses, Moses at the burning bush. Or Samuel, Samuel at the call of the prophet. Or maybe even, my God, my God, as Jesus hung on the cross. Abraham, you've proven your faith. You've proven your trust in me. Your willingness to give up your one and only son proves that while you love the gift, you love the giver of the gift more. Then in the following verses, God provides a ram for the sacrifice. You know how the ram was provided? His horns were caught in the thicket in the thorns. Kind of reminds me of how Jesus wore a crown of thorns. A ram became Isaac's substitute, and Jesus, the Lamb of God, became our substitute. Abraham, while you love the gift, you love the giver more. It's not wrong to love the gifts that God has given us. It's not wrong to love the gifts that God has given us. It's not wrong to be grateful for the things that God has entrusted us as long as we love the giver more. Some of you probably struggle with this passage because it seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? I've struggled with this passage many, many times. I want to start as we begin to hopefully help you relieve some of that tension, I want to start by, by asking a question here. Do you think God's going to ask you to sacrifice your child? Do you think God's going to ask you to sacrifice your child? No. No way. No, God's not going to ask you to sacrifice your child, but He may ask you to be okay with them going to serve as missionaries in a country that's hostile to Christianity. See what's going on there? It's okay to love the gift. It's okay to love your child, but you've got to love the giver of the gift more. God's not going to ask you to sacrifice your child, but he may call you away from your high-paying job to go into ministry at a quarter of the salary. God's not going to ask you to kill your child, but he may ask you to give in such a way that changes your lifestyle. God's not going to ask you to kill your child, but never forget that for our sake, God did kill his. You know, in school we learn all kinds of lessons. We take all kinds of tests to prove that we've learned those lessons. We have essay tests, everybody's favorite, right? We have tests with objective questions, fill in the blank, true, false. True and the false is always the best. Even if you're not prepared, you've got a 50% chance of getting it right. Right? We have all kinds of tests. There's oral exams, all different kinds of tests that prove we've learned our lesson. This was the test for Abraham, and he passed. He passed. He learned his lesson, and here's why. Abraham learned to trust God. But he learned to trust God by failing that test several times previously. He never would have been able to pass this test on the side of the mountain unless he had learned earlier. And quite frankly, Abraham had a hard time learning to trust God. 
fact, he was, he was pretty awful at it for a while. Genesis chapter 12, if we rewind just a little bit. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household, the land, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And the people of the earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham went. Can you imagine that conversation? I can't imagine having a conversation with God that went like that. God says, Abraham, pack your stuff. It's time to go. Where are we going, God? Or when are we going, God? Now. How long are we going to be gone? Forever. Where are we going? I'll tell you later. I, I, don't, I don't understand that conversation. God told him that he would go to a land that he would show him, and Abraham did. So far, Abraham's looking pretty strong in the trust God column, right? He's pretty good so far. Let's fast forward a little bit. After he left his homeland, Abraham and his family, they ran into some trouble. There was a famine, and they ended up taking a detour into Egypt. And while in Egypt, Abraham developed this scheme to lie about who Sarah was. He said, all right, Sarah, when we go, we go to Egypt, we meet the royal people. You say that you're my sister, not my wife. That way we can both live. And so that's what he said. So she tells the Egyptians that she's Abraham's sister, and it ends up causing trouble all the way up to the highest courts in Egypt, in the palace of Pharaoh. And it would have been so much better if they would have just trusted God. But Abraham didn't trust God. Abraham didn't trust God to protect his family while they were in a foreign land. Let's fast forward a little bit more. Now Sarah... Abraham's wife had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarah had said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands. Abraham, Abram said, What is happening here? Thought I was doing what you said. Now everything's bad. So Abraham said, Do with her whatever you think is best. And Sarah said, or Sarah mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. Can I just summarize this story here really quick for you? Abraham didn't trust God to come through on his promise. Abraham didn't trust God that he would come through on his promise, the one to fulfill the covenant. So Sarah and Abram ran ahead of God, and Abram conceived a child with Sarah's maid. Caused way more harm than good, and we feel the consequences of that even today. It's obvious that Abraham struggled with learning to trust God. He failed it 
again and again. He had an opportunity to trust God, and he'd fail it. And he'd have an opportunity to trust God, and he'd fail it. But he finally learned that lesson. So as he stood there on the top of the mountain, ready to sacrifice his son, we see that he had finally learned to trust God. I think it's important for all of us to learn to trust God. No matter how many times you've failed at it before, no matter how many times you've said, I'm going to trust God this time, it's going to be awesome. And then you've gone two whole days trusting God and did it on your own and saw everything turn into a mess. No matter how many times you've done that, I want you to notice that Abraham didn't get it right at first either. It's important that we learn to trust God. There's another lesson that we need to learn from Abraham's life. He's not only the first Jew, the father of Israel, he was the first person in the Bible to ever tithe. Did you know that? Abraham was the first person in the Bible to ever tithe. I want you to check this out. This is a fascinating story with fascinating characters. After Abram returned from defeating Kedor Lamor, yep, skip it. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Mr. Wisely says, skip it. After Abram returned from defeating Skippet and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. It's first tithe recorded in the Bible. Now, we can't miss some of the details in the text. It would be natural for us to just pass over the name Melchizedek and say, well, it's just one of those impossible to pronounce Old Testament names. Melchizedek is not skip it. Okay? They're different people. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It means king of righteousness. So the king of righteousness brought out bread and wine, and he wanted Abraham to eat at his table. The king of righteousness brought out bread and wine and wanted Abraham to eat at his table. Does that remind you of anything? Maybe Jesus and his disciples in an upper room, and Jesus brought out what? Bread and wine. Melchizedek did the same thing. And then he blessed Abraham and acknowledged God most high, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And in response, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had. Can I give you some Bible information, some really technical Bible information? Abram had a lot. Right? Abram had a lot. And he gave a tenth of it to Melchizedek, this king of righteousness. Before these passages in the Bible were written that commanded a tithe, Abraham established one. Abraham did the right and good thing in giving a tenth of everything to the king and priest Melchizedek. When Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, he acknowledged his status before this king. He acknowledged this uh, his status before this king. You see, here's what a tithe does. When you give a tenth, when you give a tithe, you're saying, you are my king. Because giving a tithe is a sign of submission. 
Giving a tithe is a sign of submission. Giving a tenth of anything is significant, right? If I have a burrito and Atticus and I are out to lunch, and he's not a big guy, but he, he's going to need to eat a little bit, so he wants a tenth of my burrito, guess so what? I'm going to miss that tenth of my burrito. That's a silly example, isn't it? That's a really silly example, but I'd miss it if, if we have $100 to live off of and I give 10 of it away. Suddenly that's a pretty significant amount of money, isn't it? Would that have been groceries? Would that have been gas money? What would that have gone to? The electric bill? I don't know. But to give a tenth of something is a significant thing, and it's a sign of submission. It communicates a significant thing. It, com- it communicates our submission to God. Our submission to God. So Abraham, Abraham likes words that start with T. Or maybe it's just me um, alliterating. But we've talked about tithes. We've talked about trust. And we've talked about a test. These are the words that pretty well encapsulate the life of Abraham. Three lessons that we need to learn too. Perhaps maybe you don't tithe because you haven't learned to trust God. Perhaps maybe you don't tithe because you haven't learned to trust that God will meet our needs. See, this entire issue of tithing is really a test to see if Jesus is our king. Because Jesus is our king of righteousness. Jesus is called our high priest in the order of Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. He sets before us a table of bread and wine. The question is, do we bring to him our tithes declaring that he is our king? When we tithe, giving a tenth of our income to the Lord, we acknowledge our status below Jesus. Our tithes declare that we are followers of Jesus Christ, his servants, saying by our actions, you are my king of righteousness. And that's what I want. That's what I want for all of us to say with our lives that Jesus is our king of righteousness. And I want, I want my son to know this. I want my son to know whose side I am in all aspects of my life, withholding nothing. What we do with our money is a big deal because it clearly reveals our hearts before God. It reveals that we do or do not live under His authority. Giving God a, ten, a tithe or a tenth, it's not, a, it's not an act of generosity, it's an act of obedience. And it reveals something about our hearts. Do we trust God? Is He our King? And, you know, the whole Bible says you can trust God. Right? You can trust God. It's, you can find that on just about every page in the Bible in some way, shape, or form. You can trust God. But money, what we do with the resources God has entrusted to us answers the question, do you trust God? The Bible says bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. I want to talk a little bit about the tithe, what it was used for in the Old Testament. It says bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And the storehouse at the temple was like an ancient vault. It was a place of safekeeping. And the tithe did four things in the ancient world. First of all, it paid the tribe of Levi. It paid the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. It helped 
pay for repairs on the temple. And all of God's trustees said amen. Right? It paid for repairs on the temple. It provided help for the widows and the orphans. And it sent prophets out on the road to minister. Same four things happen today at Mount Tabor with your tithes and offering. Pays the tribe of Levi. Right? It pays the ministry staff to be able to do this full time. It, it pays for repairs on the building so that this place can continually be a place where people learn that Jesus is Lord. Provides for widows and orphans and the people in our community who have needs. And we send out missionaries all over the world to tell people that Jesus is Lord. As we get ready to close, I want you to imagine something with me. What if all of us brought the whole tithe into the storehouse? What could be done then? What could we do if everybody brought the whole tithe into the storehouse? How many people could we send out as missionaries across town and around the world? How many children could we send to church camp? How many families in the area could we aid with Hoosier's help? How many moms could we minister to at care? How many families could we feed from the food bank? The list of what ifs is endless if everybody obeyed this command of God to bring a full tithe into the storehouse. But you know, what we do with the money, quite frankly, isn't as important to me as this other issue. The issue of what's going on in your heart is what's most important to me. Sure, see, there's, there's this common misconception about why churches preach about money. Right? They, they preach about money because they want more money, right? I've made the joke that I'm, I'm getting a new Corvette out of this deal, right? It's, it's not the case, okay? We're not going to tile the lobby in Italian marble. There's no chandeliers, right? Yes, we do want more money, but we want more money so that we can help more people and so that we can tell more people about Jesus. But that's a secondary issue for me. What we do want is to make sure that your relationship with God is strengthened by making sure that Jesus has the prime spot in your life, that nothing is above him, not even your finances. That's what this series is about making sure that Jesus has the ultimate authority in our lives. I want to leave you with one thought. Warren Buffett gave $26 billion to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation recently, and he was called generous by every news outlet around the world. And he responded in an article to Forbes magazine. He said, I'm not generous. I gave $26 billion, but the truth is it didn't change my lifestyle at all. I can still go out to eat where I want. I can still afford my house. I can still afford to go out to the movies. That gift didn't change my lifestyle at all. He went on to say that when people give in such a way that they have to change how they live, those people are generous. I want to ask you to be generous. Not just because we're giving to a worthy cause, but so that we can fully submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for entrusting us with the resources that you've entrusted us with. We thank you for providing for us. We thank you for making sure that all of our needs are met. 
I know that the, the body is more than food and clothing, but you are so gracious in providing that for us. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see the people in our community that need your help, that need us to invest in them. God, we love you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.